You may be seated. <clears throat> well, why don't you get your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. And uh, just would ask you to pray for our family. We'll be leaving after the service tonight uh, to Tucson to visit family. My sister-in-law is getting married, and we're going to be part of that wedding. And then also Sunday through Wednesday, I'll be preaching a revival for North Valley Baptist Church, which I had the privilege of attending uh, just before I went off to college. And so excited to be part of that. Would, would appreciate your prayers as uh, try to be help there and a blessing. And super thankful for those who will be uh, doing various things as we're gone. Uh, not only in the church on Sunday with Robert preaching and teaching, uh, musically, Rick and Joy will be helping there, and then uh, super thankful for those who will be helping on Friday with the outreach events at um, the park right over here. And so thankful for all the different ways that church you're stepping up as we uh, head out of town means a lot to me. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 tonight, so hope you found your place there. Many years ago, someone wrote the description of the perfect pastor. I would imagine maybe if you've been in church a while, you might have heard it. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. Sorry, you're out of luck. I may be heading on vacation, but I'm going to give you a 40-minute sermon tonight. I could promise you that. He condemns sin roundly but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. till midnight and is the church janitor as well. He makes $40 a week, but donates $30 a week to the church. But he also wears good clothes, drives a decent car, and buys good books to continue and grow in his learning. He's 29 years old, but has 40 years of experience. And above all, he is handsome. All right, Judson thinks it's funny. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor, and he is seriously dedicated to the church. He makes 10, ten home visits a day, and is always in his office to be handy when needed. He never misses the needs of the church family, but he is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. And the, the saying ends with this, the perfect pastor is always in the next church over. <laughs> you know, that description is as humorous as it is sad. It's sad because... Um, it's often reflective, I think, of the expectations people put on pastors, and honestly, sometimes the expectations pastors put on themselves. I think we would agree that, if we're just thinking about this for a second, that the scorecard that the average pastor lives and dies by has a lot more to do with the things I just read and very little to do with scripture. And that problem is not new. To Christians, 
If you've been with us in our study, really Paul in a lot of these sections in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, we're seeing that this church that Paul is writing to has had some very serious miscalibration going on with their expectation and their attitude towards church leadership. We saw that last week, that, that, that Paul tells us in some ways last week in chapter three how we shouldn't view ministers. We shouldn't view them on different teams. We shouldn't view them as unaccountable for their work. We shouldn't view them as something we can boast in or take sides in. And in the way that chapter three tells us not to view ministers, chapter four tells us how to view ministers of the gospel. How do we know this? Well, because the first sentence in chapter four, look at it with me. Chapter four, verse one says this. Let a man so account of us. Or you and I might say this. This is how a man should consider us. Paul's addressing mindsets about ministers. Now, Paul is not just any minister. He's an apostle, which has a certain type of authority and a type of role in the church. But as we read through the passage, I believe this passage does not just apply to apostles because what we'll see later on down in chapter number four in um, verse, I'm trying to find it, verse 17 that he is also conveying these mindsets and preparing them for another man who would come and minister to them. His name was Timothy. And not to mention, I think Paul is speaking on this subject because he's not in the church physically, but we have to assume that there was leadership in the church at the time who may or may not have reflected healthy gospel leadership. And the church certainly may not have had the proper attitude towards their current set of elders or pastors. And so Paul in our passage tonight is going to give us three mindsets that we should have about ministers. I think there's three of them here. I had four, but I crossed one out this afternoon because the fourth one was that the fourth mindset we should have about ministers is that occasionally we should deliver them cookies. And to my pleasant surprise, Colleen and Melissa's Sunday school class checked that one off the list. And so I, I lowered it down to three. So you can thank Colleen and Melissa and the kiddos for that. What's that? Yeah, I'd be here 50 minutes. That's right. So let's read this chapter together. And then I want you to see three mindsets about ministers. This is the word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God." And these things, brethren, I have in a figure 
transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, but that no one of you be puffed up for one against the, uh, another. <clears throat> for who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst, not, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? And I think that the only proper way to read the following verses is to read them incredibly sarcastically. And I mean that, because that's, Paul's not praising them. He's mocking them. He says this, Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as if it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause I have sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come unto you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Paul in this passage gives us three mindsets. And the first mindset is this, if you're taking notes, that ministers are ultimately accountable to Christ and not human judgment. What Paul makes clear is that he nor any other pastor, in verses one through seven, they're not ultimately subject to the evaluation of humans. He says this in in several different ways. Verse number one, he says that we are the ministers of Christ. We are servants of Christ. We we tend to read past this like this is rhetorical fluff from Paul. You know what he's saying? He's saying Jesus is my boss, not you. I'm a servant of Christ. 
That's my boss. I'm a steward. I'm a manager of the mysteries of God. Now remember, why would Paul say that? Because here the church is putting pressure on him and in some ways looking down on him because he did not modify his message to match up with Greek rhetorical speech and rhetorical style, the wisdom of the world, right? And Paul is saying, listen, I can't, I can't change my message because it's not my message to begin with. I'm a steward of the message of God of the mysteries of Christ. And so it doesn't really matter what you think because I'm not accountable to you because you didn't write the message. I'm a steward of the mysteries of Christ. It's his message and I'm accountable to handle it as he would want. He says in verse number two that because of that, I'm supposed to be faithful to Christ regardless of whether you think it's faithful. And he says in verse number three something that is, is quite uh, direct. He says, you know, honestly, church, it's a really small thing to me what you think of me. Now, he doesn't say it's unimportant, but he does say it's quite small. He says, he, now we know in other passages of scripture, and we have to understand that there are other passages of scripture that talk about pastoral ministry, and so we have to weigh scripture against scripture, but what Paul is saying here is really important. Because what he's saying is that <clears throat> the church, yes, should assess the pastor. And of course, that goes into hiring and firing and, or appointing and ordaining or not. But what Paul is saying is that the church's judgment of him doesn't really matter. And I'll get to why in a minute. In fact, he goes a step further and he says, it's not just your judgment that doesn't matter. Look at verse 3. He says, it's not even my own judgment that matters. I don't even judge myself. You know why he's saying that? Verse number four, he says basically this, my assessment of myself, just like yours, may not actually be accurate. You know, there's this thing in the Bible called self-deception. And if self-deception is possible, it's also possible that the church may have had a wrong assessment of Paul. And he says, here's the reality, that we shouldn't be placing a final judgment on some man according to our own standards because you may be wrong, I may be wrong, but Jesus is never wrong. That's why he says in verse number five that I'm not concerned about your judgment ultimately. It's very small to me. But he says, I'm very concerned about the judgment that will come by the Lord. Because unlike you, church, and unlike me, this Lord, Jesus Christ, he will bring to light the hidden things. Hey, listen, mankind can't do that. Church family, I'm sorry, you don't know the hidden things of my heart. But boy, uh, it would be actually a lot easier to impress you than Jesus because Jesus knows the deepest, darkest corners of my heart and he will bring those things to light that were hidden in darkness. He will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. It reminds me of what Samuel said or what God said to Samuel. What did he say? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. <clears throat> You know what Paul's telling us? He's saying that you should not judge ministers at an improper time or by an improper criteria. Now we understand that this has to be balanced out with other passages of scripture. Some of the ones I'll read to you tonight will require a church to assess a pastor. 
But what the real issue is here in the church context that Paul is dealing with is they were judging him at an improper time. Look at verse five. He says, don't judge anything before the time. What is the time? Well, just read four more words in your Bible. Until the Lord come. That's the time. That's the day of judgment. And so we can sometimes rush to judgment before the proper time of judgment comes. I think we've all seen this play out when it comes to um, things that show up on the news. Uh, in the last several years, it's been a really popular thing to publicly uh, indict often police officers based on a cell phone recording, right? And you and I have seen this play out time and time again uh, in both directions that a viral video clip will come out of someone dying or being murdered or being uh, uh, arrested and, and handled pretty harshly by a police officer and the whole public will be ready to hang this guy. You know, put him in the stocks, fire him. And what happens so often? That more evidence comes to light and is presented to the judge on the day of judgment. And when that evidence comes out and it's more than just a viral video clip, the judgment, the assessment changes. Sometimes it implicates that person and sometimes it releases them from the guilt of that offense. And I think that's not just true of police officers, it's true of pastors, and it's true of people, right? Paul's not saying anything new here. Jesus is the one who said to remove the beam out of our own eye uh, before we judge the splinter in another man's eye. He says, don't judge or you will be judged yourself. It's the same idea. And I think that this is an important word to all of us here. You may not be a pastor, so maybe let me make a little application to you. I think sometimes as people, we get so caught up in the evaluation of other people. What do mom and dad think? What do my brothers and sisters think? What does my uncle think? What, is, what, is, what do my coworkers think of me? What do people online think of me? Or even worse, you know, our harshest critic is the one who stares at us in the mirror. And I think Paul's giving us a good example that, that those things ultimately should not be what drives our life. When you are, are so concerned with the assessment and the judgment of others, again, it's not completely unimportant, but I love Paul's wording. It should be a small thing. It should be a small thing. That when we fix our eyes on the judgment of Christ, here's what will happen. We will care about things that are more deep, than we would care about if we were obsessed with our own self-judgment or the judgment of others. And here's what will also happen. It will free us from being bound by the expectations of people that we can never please. Somebody say amen to that. Listen, this, is, this will help you. This will free you. If you live life for the judgment of Christ and not the judgment of people. So Paul says, don't judge at an improper time. But he also says in verse number six, not to judge by an improper criteria. How does he say that? <clears throat> Look back at verse number six here. He says, in these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the things I'm, I'm about to say, middle of verse six, I have tried to live by example. I've tried to be an example of this. What is he and Apollos an example of? Continue reading verse six. 
that you would learn in us not to think above, think of men. Notice that that's in italics. That's not actually in the text. It's a supplied idea there. To think of men above that which is written. Literally how it reads is, not, is to not go beyond what is written. He says, here's, here's my desire. That I hope that you've seen by my example and that you would learn in your own heart not to go beyond what is written. Okay, you might write that down because that's, uh, I think, a profound concept. What, what is Paul telling us here? That when it comes to the judgment of a minister of Christ, that what matters is what is written, okay? Here's how I wanna, I wanna word it. You might write this phrase down. I wanna encourage you to stay on the line when it comes to your evaluation of yourself and of ministers. What do I mean by stay on the line? Robert thinks the slideshow messed up. It didn't, it's on purpose. Here's the line. What does the line represent? It represents what is written. But here's what happens sometimes. That you and I, we, we tend to think that what's written when it comes to evaluating a pastor or ourselves is not enough. And so we tend to live either up here or here. Above the line, that's evaluating by extra biblical criteria, meaning that we are adding to our judgment of a pastor or minister things that aren't in the Bible. The entire thing I read in my introduction would be extra biblical criteria. But you know, there's an opposite problem. I, one I assume is not the problem that we would fall into, but it's, it's dismissing biblical criteria. Right, And so what Paul is saying is that the evaluation that matters is what's written. We need to stay on the line when it comes to our evaluation of ourselves and of our pastor. We do not subtract from what is written and say, you know what, the Bible says that you should be held to that standard, but we don't care. Nor should we say, you know, the Bible says this, but we're gonna really ride your case because all this extra expectations that we're piling on you. Paul's saying, you don't have the prerogative to do that. God has set the line in the scripture, and Paul really is a good example of this because in 1 Corinthians, whether or not you've seen it yet, he quotes the Old Testament a lot, a lot. Every sermon I have preached from 1 Corinthians has had at least one Old Testament quotation, some of them two or three even in a row. Paul says that we are not to evaluate ministers by criteria that is above the line or below the line. We stay on the line. Now, why is that important? <clears throat> why is that important? I'm just speaking personally here. I'm not trying to speak around the subject because there's, you know, you're looking at the guy who's the minister, right? Why is it important for you to stay on the line when how you assess your pastor, whether that's me or I drop dead and someone else has to step in? Because I hope that you would want for me the same thing I want for you. And that is to be prepared for the day you stand before Jesus. Here's the truth. If a church pushes their pastor to live above the line, what they're doing is they're saying, you know what? We really want you to be prepared for our judgment. And, you know, the judgment day of Jesus doesn't really matter. When they don't hold the pastor to the line and they drop below it, 
That's actually so unloving for a church to do. To say, you know what, the Bible has these standards, but you don't have to be held to them. Maybe because we don't lose you or be hard to find a replacement or whatever the case may be. Hey, friend, I want you as a church not to not evaluate a pastor's character or life or work. The Bible speaks in many other areas about that. What I want for you and what, what you could do to be a blessing to your pastor is not just to appreciate me like, like the cookies and all that show, but to say, listen, I care about you enough, Pastor Mike, to say if something is written that you ought to be held to that standard because I don't want to show up in front of Jesus unprepared. I don't know about you. So Paul says, don't go above what is written, but by all means, hold us to the line. Here's the second mindset. Ministers should be examples of a Christ-like life that we should imitate. In Paul, in that sarcastic section where he contrasts the Corinthians with himself, What he's doing by that is he's saying, listen, you guys are caring about all of the wrong things. He says, you guys care about all of the wrong things. What you need to be concerned about is what me and Apollos and other apostles are living by. Look at our values because these values represent Christ's values. And he says that if we are exhibiting these values, you should then follow our example. Well, how does he do that? He he shows them in verse number eight that they were obsessed with status and honor and the adulation and the uh, approval of the world. You are full, verse eight. You are rich. You have reigned with kings without us. I would to God you did reign. You know what he's saying? Boy, I sure wish we were as wise and as important as you. Sure wish we were. I sure wish, verse 10, that we were as wise as you are. And we were as honored as you are. But you know what Paul says? He begins to point to his own example. And he shows the Corinthians in this very sarcastic and stern tone that they placed value on all of the wrong things. And listen, all of the things that Paul says they were after, listen carefully, were not reflected by one day of Jesus's life. That when you look at the very different values of Paul as the minister and the church pursuing honor and riches and status, Paul very intentionally describes his example in words that remind us of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about himself. And the way I would describe what Paul is describing in verses 9 through 13, I would like to call Paul's example the example of a cross-shaped life. And that's what we're called to live for. We don't pursue the values that the Corinthians are after, but notice how Paul describes the cross-shaped life. Verse number eight, he says that we are last of all. Verse number nine, we are, look at verse number nine. We are appointed to death. We are sentenced to death. We are a spectacle to the world. Do you know what he's saying? You know what our destiny is, apostles and followers of Jesus? We have the destiny of a humiliating death. Does that sound like somebody you know who hung naked on a cross 
And in that account, God is mentioned, angels are mentioned, and men are mentioned. Paul says in verse number nine that we are foolish and we are weak and we are dishonored in the eyes of the world. And isn't that what Jesus promised that his followers would be viewed as in this world? Verse number 11, he describes how they lacked the necessities of life. We hunger, we thirst, we're naked, we're beaten or buffeted, and we have no certain dwelling place. Does that not remind us of what Jesus said, that the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head? He says in verse number 12 through 13, he says, we suffer mistreatment by people, and when we suffer mistreatment by people, we respond with the character of Christ. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we suffer. When we are defamed, we try to resolve conflict rather than escalating conflict. And he concludes his whole analysis of verse 13 with the most crazy description. He says, we are the off-scouring of all things. We're the, we're the scum of the earth, he says. You know what Paul's saying to the church? He's saying, you want to know what it looks like to live like Jesus? These are bold words. But you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, stop looking at your values and start looking at me. Now, when I read this, it convicts me because I can't always say that I perfectly reflect the example of Christ. But what we do know in the scriptures is that what matters to God is that a pastor, a minister, is somebody who has Christ-like character. What we know about scripture is that scripture puts a lot of weight on the character of a minister and just a little bit of weight on the ability of a minister. We read the qualifications of a pastor and there's only one skill-based qualification the whole thing. The rest of it is essentially Paul's opinion, inspired opinion, of what it looks like to have an example of Christ in the congregation. Listen to Paul's words about Christ-like character that must be found in the life of a pastor. There are some words I've updated because they've changed over the years, and since I'm reading it and not studying it, I just wanted to hit you in the ears as I read it. But here's what Paul says. He says, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. That's the Christ-like character that Paul says should not just be true of him, but of every person who is called to be an elder or a pastor of one of God's churches. 
What's the big deal? Why does it matter to you? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I know it may sound silly to you, and maybe I, I overemphasize this sometimes, but no pastor's permanent. At some point, this church will hire another pastor. Maybe that's 20, 30 years in the future, but at some point that will happen. Or God will move you to a different place and you will be in a place of transition. And I'm telling you, if I had money for every time I've seen this, where churches take for granted the things that the Bible emphasizes and say, so, you know what, we're just gonna focus on the above the line stuff when we're hiring a pastor or ordaining a plurality of elders or whatever the case may be, and they totally forget what is on the line. They forget the, the, the fundamentals. But then there's another response that, that God requires of you is that in so much, in so much as the pastor reflects Christ's character, unashamedly, Paul says, with no qualification, in verse 16, follow me. Follow me. Why is God so big? Almost as if it's the only thing that matters. Why is he so big on the fact that a minister should have a Christ-like cross-shaped life? Because he knew that as people, we need an example to follow. This is not the only place that this is said in Scripture. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul says to Timothy, by the way, this is a command that basically means this, don't allow anyone to look down on your youth. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and purity. Man, that sounds a lot like the list I just read from 1 Timothy 3 and the list here in 1 Corinthians 4. Listen to Hebrews 13, 7, as it describes our response to this example. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith, what? Follow, considering the end of their lifestyle or conversation. What does God desire? Well, he doesn't want your life to look exactly like Pastor Mike or whoever your pastor is at the time. The scorecard's not that. I would that all of you would become coffee-loving, coffee-drinking, iPhone-using people. But ultimately, what matters is not my preferences, but in so much as Christ is being formed in me. God desires that Christ will be formed in you. And if you don't see me as an example of that, fire me tomorrow, because that's all that matters. And my hope and my prayer is that in some way, though you may not see me as the best pastor on planet earth or whatever, I don't care about that, that in some way you can look at my life, hopefully a decent amount of time, and see an example of Christ. That in me you can see an example of someone who's seeking and saving the lost. That you could see someone who's dwelling richly in Christ in my personal disciplines. That you can see someone. This is one reason that I don't worry about leading worship is because I want you to see that it matters to me. 
that I love preaching, but man, when we sing to God, that is important. That I am an example of a life free from sin, that I'm an example of a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship with my children. I'm not gonna apologize for this because Paul doesn't, but if you see something that looks like Jesus, by all means, imitate it. And if you don't see something that looks like Jesus, listen, care about me enough to talk to me about it. Care about me enough to talk to me about it. Because I will stand before God someday, and wouldn't it be a shame if a pastor stays in a church for 20 years and never hears a negative comment about his character and he stands before Jesus and like chapter three says, all of his work is burned up because he lived a life with little character. Oh man, I ought to be an example and I pray that in some way you see that. I found this, that most Christians aren't bothered by the idea of a pastor whose example they can follow. That where the rubber really meets the road for most people and where they get a little uncomfortable is when we start talking about a pastor as an authority they should take seriously. But that's how Paul ends his mindset here. The last mindset is this, that ministers are fathers and leaders that should be taken seriously. In verses 18 through 20 and other places in the passage, Paul emphasizes his authority over the congregation. Again, there's a special sense of authority given to him as an apostle, but it's in this section that he transfers that authority to Timothy and our letter, actually, to the Corinthians will end with Paul saying something very similar in chapter 16, as if he wasn't sure they would listen the first time. So he says it again at the end of the letter in chapter 16. Now, I think it's important to know, don't tune me out. Let me give you my token disclaimer when I talk about pastoral authority, okay? That this authority of a pastor is not unlimited, okay? Breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, it's not unlimited authority. What matters does the pastor have authority over? Well, praise Jesus, our passage does not leave that up to discussion. Verse number six, I think, gives us a good way to think about it, that what our authority is over as a pastor is over what is written in the scriptures, that the authority of the pastor really is just a mirror of the authority of the word of God over the congregation. And, and Paul is going to demonstrate through the, throughout the rest of his letter that he believes the word of God speaks to the particular issues of a local church. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be meeting tonight and preaching through a book of the Bible that was written 2,000 years ago, right? He believes that the pastor has authority in so much as the word of God, and here's how I say it, but it comes to bear on the situation that the church is facing. What does the Bible say about this? And in so much as the Bible says something by principle or direct application, that is where the pastor's authority begins and ends. But Paul describes his authority with this metaphor of fatherhood in verses 14 through 15. He calls himself a father of the church. Now, part of that is because he started the church, but again, 
He's transferring that authority to Timothy. And the, the metaphor of a father is a really rich one, isn't it? Because in an ideal situation, though some of us may not have had fathers like this, what is, what is true of a father or what should be true? They are examples we should follow and they are authorities that we take seriously. And Paul ends chapter four with, in case you didn't catch it, an extremely serious warning. Look at verse 21. He says, what will ye? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? You know what he's saying? He's saying, what would you prefer? That when I show up to Corinth next time, that I show up with a rod? He doesn't mean literally, like, you know, maybe your parent used. He's saying this, would you rather me come with a tone of rebuke and correction? Or would you rather our visit be nice and friendly? These are serious words, are they not? You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you want me to come in love and meekness and gentleness, obey what the word of God says. Fix these issues before I show up again. That's what he's saying. Because if you don't fix them before I show up, you will have some words with me. And he says, I'll have some words out with these people who are puffed up in arrogance. And we'll see how powerful they are when I stand face to face with them and challenge them on the word of God. That's what he says in verse number 19. Let's see if these are people of power. Which, by the way, later on, we're going to find out they accuse Paul of being weak and powerless. I think he's intentionally saying that. And then in verse 17, he says that it's not just me who can come to you and teach you with authority. No, Timothy's going to come. He's a young man. Look at verse 19, or sorry, verse 17. I've sent you Timothy, and Timothy shares the same Christ-like example I have. And Timothy is going to teach you the words of God like I taught you. And the idea here is you should listen to Timothy like I trust you're going to listen to me. Because ultimately, it does not matter the age of a minister. It does not matter even the experience of a minister. If so long as the minister proclaims the word of God, that's what matters. And that's what has authority. And it don't matter whether 12-year-old Tommy stands up here and preaches the Bible. The Bible has the authority of God himself behind it. That's what he's saying. And so here's what Paul's saying to this church. And to us, if pastors are given God-given authority from the word of God, then the congregation must respond to God's word with submission. Now, we recognize that pastoral authority is limited to areas in which the word of God speaks. And it does not derive from age. Praise God for that. I wouldn't have taken any pastoral job if it had to do with age. If that's your mindset, get over yourself. I'm just being kind. Get over yourself. It doesn't have to do with personality. Praise God. I mean, I don't garner much, I don't have much charisma if you haven't figured that out in two years. It doesn't have to do with church tradition. It's not, does this church view pastoral authority strongly or does this church not? No, no, no. It has nothing to do with denominational tradition. It just has to do with whether or not the word of God is speaking to the issue at hand. 
whether or not the minister is saying that this is what the word of God says and this is how it applies to our life. Hebrews 13, 17 says this even more clearly. Look at it on the screen. What's the first word? Obey. Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You know what he's saying there in Hebrews, whoever it is? He's saying that you have a God-given duty to submit to what the word of God says coming from the pulpit of the minister. And he also says, to be honest, it's the best thing for you and the church to do that. Because no pastor wants to minister in a church that bucks against the word of God and the authority that God has given the pastor. So what does this say to us tonight? That you, as a member of Fellowship Baptist Church, should submit to the word of God when it speaks into this local church context. And I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't believe that was true. Paul thought that the church should submit to a lot of different things that the word of God said about their particular situation. Listen, I know this is inspired scripture, but, but listen to this. We're one slide ahead, Brother Rick. Go back, please. Please. Other way. Thank you. Um, hopefully that didn't delete the recording. But Here's what he's saying, that Paul thought that the Bible applied to a lot of different areas that were just popping up in Corinthian life. This is, this is a normal local church dealing with issues in their culture, and just listen to how much stuff Paul says the Bible speaks to in their personal life. It's a lot. We, we will see that Paul thought the church should submit to his scriptural assessment of who should be in the church and who should be removed from church membership. In 1 Corinthians 5, he believed that the scripture had authority and that he as a preacher could proclaim authority God's view and their lifestyle as single people, their sex life in marriage, their marital relationship, the giving of a daughter from a father to a future husband, he believed that the scriptures affected where people bought and ate their meat. If you don't think scripture gets specific, it's gonna get specific. He believed that scripture dictated our associations with our past life, that the word of God speaks about pastoral compensation, the public conduct of men and women in the church, the Lord's Supper, church ministries, worship services, the church's doctrine, the church's giving, and the church's treatment of leadership, whether it's Paul or somebody else. I don't know about you, that's a lot of stuff. And so what we believe is that if the word of God says something by principle or by direct application, then we have a responsibility to obey and submit to it. And when the church doesn't respond, Paul says, then my tone gets a little bit more serious. I'm coming with a rod. Or if you respond, it's not as serious, and I can come with a different tone. God has given us in our passage three mindsets about ministers and how they affect our life as a church. 
our passage teaches us that ministers are accountable to Christ and so we must not judge them at an improper time or by an improper criteria. We know that a minister should be an example of Christ and in so much as he is, you ought to follow that example. And when he's not, you ought to talk to him about it and love him enough to do that. And we know that a minister is an authority given to speak the word of Christ and so we must take Christ's words seriously and submit to where the word of God speaks to our life or the church life and it speaks in so many different ways. So let's align our mindsets about ministers with the Bible's mindset about ministers. Let's stay on the line and not go above or below. But where the word of God speaks clearly, every church deserves a biblically qualified pastor. Every church does. And every church has a responsibility to make sure that the man who is the pastor is biblically qualified. They must respond to that as well, faithfully as our passage indicates tonight. I want to close us with a word of prayer and then we'll conclude for tonight. Father, come to you tonight. Lord, admittedly, passages like this are extremely difficult for me to preach.